from the American College of Cardiology. This is Dr. Kim Eagle, ACC.org, Editor-in-Chief, with this week's Eagle's Eye View. This is your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org. Today I want to talk about three different pieces. One is a study from the Swede Heart Registry looking at the improvement in care of patients with non-STEMI over the past 20 years. Another is a paper looking at the mode of death in patients with non-STEMI. And then I'll finish with just some highlights from the recent guidelines from the ESC for the management of cardiovascular disease during pregnancy. The first article was entitled Relations Between Implementation of New Treatments and Improved Outcomes in Patients with Non-STEMI. And this was from the Swede Heart Registry from 1995 to 2014. As you know, probably the Swedish have a web-based system, which actually allows them to track all patients in their country who have been hospitalized in a coronary care unit or with suspected diagnosis of ACS among their 72 hospitals. In this particular study, the investigators looked at over 200,000 patients with a diagnosis of non-STEMI from 1995 to 2014. It is important to note that in the earlier years, 1995 to 2001, the diagnosis relied predominantly on CKMB levels, and then from 2001 to 2014, the more contemporary troponin values along with either symptoms and or electrocardiographic change. The investigators were interested in whether or not there were improvements over time in mortality, cardiovascular mortality, heart attack, rehospitalization for heart failure or stroke, and they divided the study over the 20 years into two-year increments to look for differences in outcome. And the results are dramatic. There was a decrease in hospital mortality from 12.4% to 3.7% and cardiovascular mortality from 11.7 to 3.2, and recurrent MI dropped as well from 2.7% to 0.6%. And this is despite the fact that the median age of the population with non-STEMI stayed the same, 74 years. The number of smokers was the same, 19%. And in fact, the population had an increase in risk factors like diabetes, hypertension, and previous revascularization. What was really interesting was the dramatic increase over time in angiography going from about 2% of patients to nearly 75%. PCI went up from about 5% to over 50%, and bypass surgery was offered initially only to 1.7%, and it went up to almost 6%. And as you would expect, there was also an increase in uh, evidence-based medical therapy, over this time frame, consistent with randomized trials and the guidelines. The analysis suggested that the decrease in the in-hospital outcomes was only partially attributed to the more frequent use of an early invasive strategy. And the one-year outcomes were definitely related to the invasive treatment, but also guideline-based optimization of medical therapy. This is such a wonderful paper because it shows us the improvement that we've been able to see in our specialty from evidence-based management, including medical therapy, as well as more invasive therapy for appropriate patients with non-STEMI. So I thought it was a great article that certainly exemplified how we're changing the game as science continues to inform. The second article I found interesting also in the general notion of non-STEMI 
This is a paper that looked at mode and timing of death among over 60,000 patients with non-STEMI that were enrolled in the 14 TIMI trials. So the investigators looked at these patients and the cumulative rates of all of these patients was merged into a database by the TIMI investigators. And they looked at patients over 60,000. They were followed for a little bit over a year. Among the patients who had mortality, which was about 3,000 patients, the cause of death was known in about 75%. Of the patients with a known mode of death, 75% were related to a cardiovascular event, 3% to a bleeding event, and about 21% or so related to a non-cardiovascular, non-bleeding event. The most common mode of death was sudden death in 36% and 23% recurrent myocardial infarction. The most interesting and salient feature of this article was the mode of death. In the first 30 days after non-STEMI, recurrent MI was the predominant driver of death, 31% versus 19%, whereas after 30 days, the predominant mode of death was sudden cardiac death. This is a very interesting observation, and I think it highlights the fact that we have a long way to go in understanding the risk of sudden cardiac death in patients who have non-STEMI. Other studies have shown this also. So we need to really focus our research in understanding these late sudden deaths that occur in non-STEMI patients. So this is really a clarion call, I think, for more research, particularly looking at uh, cardiac rhythm disorders and potentially ischemia-mediated VT late after patients have been treated for non-STEMI. And now I'm really going to go to a completely different direction and just give you the highlights from the most recent 2018 ESC guidelines for the management of cardiovascular disease during pregnancy. Obviously, this is a field that is moving fairly rapidly as we gain more and more insights into this unique group of patients. So a couple of things from the guideline which relate to risk management Risk assessment of all women with cardiac disease of uh, childbearing age should be performed using a modified World Health Organization classification. The risk of adverse events, the frequency of visits during pregnancy, and the location of the delivery should be, of course, tailored to the uh, woman's overall class of risk. Clearly, high-risk patients probably should be managed at expert centers who have multidisciplinary pregnancy heart teams. And generally, vaginal delivery is recommended as the first choice in most patients. A couple of comments about valve disease. Women with a mitral stenosis and a valve area of less than one centimeter squared are recommended to have an intervention prior to pregnancy. Also, women with indications for valve surgery prior to pregnancy should undergo those interventions or surgery before pregnancy. The choice of what type of valve prosthesis should take into consideration the various aspects of this through the pregnancy heart team. Let's talk about anticoagulation management. Obviously, pregnancy in women with mechanical heart valves involves a very complex decision-making process and meticulous anticoagulation is required. And women with mechanical valves probably should be managed at a center that has a multidisciplinary pregnancy heart team. It's important to note there are no class one recommendations for anticoagulations in the first trimester because we really don't have any large randomized trials. Currently, the guidelines favor warfarin 
instead of low molecular weight heparin if the dose is less than five milligrams per day. So that warfarin in this lower range dosing appears to be safe and is less likely than higher doses to cause problems with the fetus. Pregnant women with a mechanical valve maintained on less than five milligrams a day of warfarin are recommended to continue that during the second and third trimesters until the 36th week. Once the switch to, say, low molecular weight heparin happens, that should be managed carefully by monitoring anti-10A levels, targeting trough levels greater than or equal to 0.6 international units per ml, and frequent monitoring is needed. Changes in anticoagulation during pregnancy, like transitions, probably should be done in hospital. What about medications? Well, the FDA used to categorize safety of medications using categories A through X, but now there's a much larger database available for clinicians. And if you go to www.safefetus.com, this is where you can find this information and it is up-to-date and very thorough. A note about aortic disease. Pregnancy, of course, is not recommended in women with high-risk aortic disease, such as Marfan syndrome or other heritable thoracic aortic disease with an aorta greater than 45 millimeters, bicuspid aortic valve with an aorta greater than 50 millimeters, or 27 millimeters per meter squared of body surface area. Similarly, not recommended in Turner syndrome with an aortic index greater than 25 millimeters per meter squared of body surface area. Beta blockers are preferred in pregnant women with Marfan and other inherited thoracic aortic diseases. What about cardiomyopathy? Patients with peripartum cardiomyopathy and dilated cardiomyopathy should be canceled about the risk of recurrence during a subsequent pregnancy and or during recovery. What about hypertension? A pregnant woman should be hospitalized if her systolic blood pressure is greater than or equal to 170 systolic or a diastolic greater than 110. An initiation of drug treatment is recommended for a blood pressure greater than or equal to 150 over 90 or 140 over 90 in the presence of gestational hypertension or subclinical organ damage or symptoms. Currently, the drugs that are favored because of safety include methyl dopa, labetalol, and calcium channel antagonists. What about high-risk pregnancy? So pregnancy is not recommended in the modified WHO class four. This would be women with the following diagnoses, pulmonary artery hypertension, severe ventricular dysfunction like an EF less than 30%, or New York heart, heart class three or four symptoms, peripartum cardiomyopathy with residual impairment, severe mitral stenosis, severe symptomatic aortic stenosis, a systemic right ventricle with moderate or severe decreased RV function, severe aortic dilation, vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, severe coarctation, and Fontan with any complications. So these are really the highlights of the most recent guidelines around heart disease and pregnancy, and I thought it would be useful to just reiterate those key learning points from the guidelines. Well, I want to thank you for listening to Eagle's Eye View. This is your weekly cardiovascular update from acc.org, and you can find this information in these articles and journal scans on the website. 
Please also find a new educational catalog feature on acc.org. This is located under the Education and Meetings tab. Using this tool, you can sort out educational offerings by various formats, many of which are free. Find us online or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next week, thank you so much for listening and have a good day.